If you think that some were more righteous than others, then you miss the truth that in God's eyes, we all fall short of the glory of God. And if you find that truth objectionable, you should not, because all you have to do is meditate on the New Testament, and God opens us up with a spiritual scalpel, which we studied in Romans 1, and he shows what our capacity is. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of Romans chapter 9, we've been looking at the doctrine or teaching of predestination. In particular, we've been looking at whether God predetermines all things or whether He merely is aware of how all things will turn out. In today's message entitled, The Mercy and Judgment of God, we see in this passage from verses 14 to 18 that God's reasons for choosing Israel as the nation from whom Jesus would come was due to the mercy of God. God had to decide whether or not he would bring Messiah through Isaac's offspring or through Ishmael's offspring. He had to decide whether he would bring it through Jacob's offspring or Esau's offspring. When I got married, I had to make a choice. I had to decide whether I was going to marry Elaine or whether I was going to marry Audrey. Audrey's up there saying, who's Elaine? (laughs) Just by way of illustration, it's in the realm of fiction. Now, I could have mentioned Debbie or Mar or... No, I'm just joking. The truth is everyone wanted to marry Audrey, but God predestined her to marry me. In either case, please, 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 please... Don't let anyone tell you that Romans 9 is saying that before Ishmael was born, before Isaac was born, before Jacob was born, before Esau was born, before any of those babies saw the light of day that God predetermined two of them to go to heaven and two of them to go to hell. This section of Scripture is simply teaching that God had a plan for the descendants of Isaac and Jacob that He did not have for, the, for Ishmael and Esau. Now, when we come into the text today, the plot thickens even more. For God to select the Jews to be His chosen people makes some people mad. In fact, people have forever been wanting to exterminate the Jewish people. Throughout history, though, God has protected them. They're His chosen nation because, one, He is going to bring them, He's going to use them to bring the Messiah into the world the first time, and two, He's going to use this same group of people to bring about the second coming of Christ from heaven. So anticipating the objections that people would have that God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world, Paul asked this in verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Is it wrong for God to choose one nation over another? Well, we have no right to question the judgments of God. If you don't like the judgments that God has made in His universe, then go make your own universe and make up your own rules. But as long as you're living in His universe, we should bow our stiff necks, we should bend our stubborn knees, and with the Lord Jesus, we should say, there is no unrighteousness in God. Paul simply answers, may it never be. May Godnoita. It's a very strong adversative. Absolutely not. Perish the thought by no means. Don't be ridiculous as it's rendered in different translations. 
And so to defend his answer, Paul gives two illustrations. The first concerning Moses, who sought to lead the people of Israel righteously. The second concerning Pharaoh, who sought to lead the people of Israel unrighteously. So if you want to use your note-taking outline first, I want us to think about God's sovereignty in pardoning erring Israel. Now we've seen throughout the ninth chapter that Paul is using illustrations from the Old Testament, which reveal that God is choosing Israel in which to bring his Christ. It's part of his sovereign election of them as a nation. We saw in verses 7 through 9 his choice of Isaac over Ishmael, and then in 10 through 13 his choice of Jacob over Esau. And now once again, Paul takes us back into the Old Testament to Exodus 33 to see God's sovereign choice expressed again. Look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you will see in the New American Standard that that is in all capital letters, because that is alerting you to the fact that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. And if you have a Bible with marginal notes and you went out into the margin, you would discover that this comes from Exodus 33 and verse 19. So hold your finger here or put a marker in it and go to the book of Exodus. It's easy to find. It's the second book of the Old Testament. Now, if you read Exodus chapters 30, 32 and 33, you will see that it will set up the background for the understanding of the quotation that Paul makes here in Romans 9. Um, in Exodus 33, God reminds us that he is merciful and compassionate to the people of Israel after a wicked sin that they commit. Uh, if you remember, uh, Moses is up on the mountain of God. He comes down and he finds the people living in idolatry, living in gross sin. And God could have destroyed the nation after she had built that golden calf. But instead, he chose to lead them and protect them into the promised land. Now, very often the term mercy in the Bible, and we're going to see how it's used in this context this morning, is used not always in reference to a personal expression of mercy. God's mercy is safe for you. But sometimes the term mercy is used to describe God's covenant mercy. God's mercy that he shows on a whole nation, on national deliverance. And that's how it's going to be used today, as we will see. So he's been up on the mountain of God, also called Mount Sinai, also called Mount Paran, also called Mount Horeb. All the same mountain in the scripture. When Moses leaves the presence of God, having received the Ten Commandments of God, and he comes down from the mountain after 40 days, the people are drunk, they're living in sexual immorality, and they're worshiping at a golden calf. And God knows, after God speaks directly to Moses about what he's going to come down and find, that the nation should be destroyed. Pick it up in Exodus 32 and verse 27. We're going to see initially 3,000 people die that day when the tribe of Levi is commanded by Moses to go in and execute the instigators. Notice 32 in verse 27, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Now Moses recognizes that the nation as a whole shares the guilt. 
There were certainly some who led in the rebellion, but he realizes that the whole nation shares in the guilt. And when he recounts this event in the book of Deuteronomy, he quotes something that God says, where God says, I want to destroy the whole bunch of them. And so Moses goes, and after 3,000 are dead, and God has everyone's attention, and he goes and he intercedes for the whole nation. Look at verse 30 here of chapter 32. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you, will, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, please note, Moses says, God, if you refuse to forgive their sin, then I want my name blotted out of your book. Now, some confuse this book with the book of life in the New Testament, also called the Lamb's Book of Life. I preached a sermon once on God's library. God actually has a number of different books in His library. And the book of life is not to be confused with this book that we could call, say, the book of the living. God promises, in reference to the book of life, that no one's name will ever be blotted out. Let me read to you Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. There God said, he who overcomes, and if you've read the seven churches, you know that overcomers are the true believers. We're not saved by perseverance, but those who are saved will persevere. They will overcome. And so for John, an overcomer are those who give true worship. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." Now, please notice what Revelation 3 and verse 5 does not say. It does not say that, that those who do not overcome will be blotted out. That's a logical fallacy that some people make. A statement that can be true one way is not necessarily true the other way. Just because all dogs are animals does not mean that all animals are dogs. Revelation 3 and verse 5 uses a figure of speech that's used both in Greek and in English. And in English, we call it the totes. The totes is a figure of speech used for emphasis in which you state a positive truth in a negative way. We do it often in English. Like we'll say, for instance, you won't be sorry, meaning you'll be glad. Or we might say, uh, I will never stop loving my wife, meaning not I will stop loving her, but that I want to always love her. And this is what Paul is saying when he speaks of these overcomers who do not worship the Antichrist, that their names will not be blotted out of the book of life. Revelation 3.5 is a figure of speech to emphasize our eternal security. Now, a man came by my office about four or five months ago, and he had to talk to me. It was urgent. I said, okay, and I went out and saw him. And he said, Pastor, you need to see Revelation 3 and verse 5. You teach all the time at Community Bible Church, once saved, always saved. But here is a voice, here is a verse that specifically says that is not true. Actually, this verse is teaching just the opposite of what he thought it taught. He thought it said, well, if you do this or you don't do this, that your name will be blotted out. The verse says your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. 
It is a verse that is affirming our eternal security that we are saved forever. See, you have to put it in the context of the ancient world. In the ancient cities of the world, they would have books which would list the members of a particular city. And in many cities of the ancient world, to have your name in that book was to have an honored, uh, honored privileged status. And with that honoring, very often came specific privileges. Paul, if you remember, would appeal to the fact that he was a citizen of the city of Rome. But in those ancient days, if you committed a crime or you brought a sense of disrepute to that city, then they could erase your name as a citizen out of that book. Well, it's in that cultural context that John is affirming the fact that our names will never, ever, ever be removed from the book of life. This verse is not a verse that will give you a sense of insecurity, but if you study it, it will bring a great sense of security. And by the way, the Bible teaches that your name was written in this book, the book of life, also called the Lamb's book of life, before the foundation of the world. Last week, after the welcome, I went to the church over in Hilton Head and we shared communion together and it was a blessing to be there with the church. And someone after asked me about those verses in the Revelation that God wrote our name in the Lamb's Book of Life before He ever even created the world. And does that mean that God chose some to go to heaven and others not to? Well, let me read a verse, Revelation 13 and verse 8. There it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship Him, referring to the Antichrist, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. The identical teaching is affirmed in Revelation 17 and verse 8, that those who give allegiance to the Antichrist are those who never had their name written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. This is a marvelous truth if you can wrap your mind around it. The Lord Jesus spoke of it. He commissioned 70 to go out. He gave them miraculous powers. They cast out demons. And when they came back rejoicing, he said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names already are recorded in heaven. In like fashion, when Paul wrote the church of Philippi, he speaks, for instance, of Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, please know that God writing someone's name down in the Lamb's book of life, never to be erased in eternity past, ever before he made the world, does not mean that he elected some to go to heaven and others to go to hell. Just because God knows what will take place does not mean that He is totally responsible for all that takes place. We studied back in chapter 8, and we will come to it again when we reach Romans 11, the foreknowledge of God, and that God's foreknowledge is not so much an act as it is an attribute. That God's foreknowledge, His prognosco, His pre-knowledge does not determine what takes place. God knowing all things does not change your free will because if God didn't know everything, God would not be God. So God in eternity past can see how people will respond to His general revelation and creation and conscience. He can see how they will respond to His specific revelation given through the wooing work of God the Holy Spirit. And He saw how some would freely respond and say yes, and others would say no. And those who would say yes, He wrote their names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. We used to sing a hymn. We don't sing it much anymore. There's a new name written down in glory. That's not true. 
That's a falsehood. God wrote the names of all who would be saved in glory before the foundation of the world. Now, he might put a check next to your name when it happens in time and space. But understand, God knowing these things does not change your free will. And so here's Moses, and I went down that rabbit trail because it was important, because if I didn't, people would come up and ask me after the service, so I figured I might as well answer it now, that these two different books with similar names are not the same books. Moses is really describing the book of the living, what David refers to in Psalm 139, referring to physical life and not eternal life. The book of the living records your physical birth, your physical life, and all the days that were ordained for you even before there was yet one. But the book of life records your second birth, your spiritual birth. So Moses comes down from the mountain. The people are drunk and immoral, and uh, they're worshiping in an idol, and they're saying, this is the God that brought us up out of Egypt. Now, the children had rebelled against God's holy standards, and God wants to wipe them out. So notice verse 9 again. Moses said, I've seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, God says, let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. And so Moses, the man of God, seeks the face of God, and he's willing to stand in the gap for the people of God. Look at chapter 32 and verse 32. But now, he says, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. Again, he's saying, God, please forgive their sin. But if you will not forgive their sin, then just take my life. Moses' statement, again, has nothing to do with eternal life, but with premature death. It has nothing to do with being tormented in hell, but he loved God and he loved the holiness of God so much that he would rather be dead than to be associated with a sinful, rebellious, obstinate, unforgiven people. And on that day, though the entire nation was in rebellion, God only allowed 3,000 to die. And when he did that, he had everyone's attention. Now coming to chapter 33. Again, if you don't understand the context of the quotation that Paul's going to make, you're going to miss it and you're going to misapply it. Chapter 33 and look at verse 33. God says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst because you're an obstinate people. Essentially, God says, you can have the land that I promised, but I won't stay close to you. Because if I did, I might wipe you out. So just go your own way. And if they were satisfied with that arrangement, what would it prove? It would have proved that they loved the blessings of God more than they loved God Himself. And there are many Christians like that today. They love the blessings of God more than they love the Lord God. And so in verse 5, Moses delivers the bad news. He says, you're an obstinate people. And in verse 6, the people showed that they really cared that they wanted the Lord. And so they go into mourning and they take off all the external ornaments of celebration. Now look at verse 7 of chapter 33. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now don't confuse this tent called the tent of meeting with a latter tent called the tabernacle, also given later on the same name, the tent of meeting. The tabernacle had not yet been constructed. 
But Moses would go into his little tent and the Shekinah glory, this pillar of cloud would overshadow it. Unlike the tabernacle, which we know all the sizes and contents and measurements, we don't know that about this, but like the tabernacle, it was a reminder that sin had separated people from God. Now, beginning in verse 12, he pours his heart out to God and he pleads for the nation of Israel, wanting God's presence. And Moses wants to affirm what God said. I don't want to go without your presence. And so he wants to see a glimpse of God. Remember now, the people before the, right at the start of the 40 days, when they went up on the mountain, before he came down 40 days later with the Ten Commandments, when they heard the voice of God, they trembled, they shook. They said, surely we're going to die just because we've heard his voice. But here's Moses. And he wants to see a glimpse of God. He would rather die than not have God go with him. Verse 17, then the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And now a portion of the verse of verse 19 is what's quoted in Romans 9. Look at verse 19. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I have compassion. He's giving Moses a sense of assurance. We just read how God said the whole nation should be obliterated. But God only destroyed 3,000 that day. Why only 3,000 and not everyone? And why those 3,000 and not a different 3,000? Why did God erase the names of some who were in the book of the living? We're not told except for the fact that Paul uses this event to show that God in his own wisdom can have compassion on whom he has compassion and he can show mercy on whom he has mercy. Certainly, there were 3,000 who were more flagrant in their idolatry, probably leaders in the whole thing. But in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 8, God said he was so angry with the nation that he should kill them all. But God in his sovereign mercy has mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion. And let me just say, if you read this text of Scripture and you come to the conclusion, well, those 3,000 deserved it, then you've missed the whole point of Exodus and why Paul is quoting this text. If you think that some were more righteous than others, then you miss the truth that in God's eyes we all fall short of the glory of God. And if you find that truth objectionable, you should not, because all you have to do is meditate on the New Testament and God opens us up with a spiritual scalpel, which we studied in Romans 1, and he shows what our capacity is. If God had done nothing, if God had shown no mercy, if God had shown no compassion, if he had never sent his son and damned us all, it would have been perfectly just. And when you really understand that, you fall on your face. And you thank God and you worship God for His amazing compassion on your soul. Now back to Romans 9. Let's see the flow and how Paul is using again this quotation. He asks the question, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. 
He's using this event to illustrate the truth that God in showing mercy on some was an expression of his his wise judgment. Paul's implication is interesting. He's basically saying, listen, if you're going to say that God is unrighteous because he chooses one nation over another, then you have to conclude that God was unrighteous up there on Mount Sinai when he let any person live. Everybody in the nation deserved to die. And so he he takes that quote from the book of Exodus, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And again, the word mercy can refer to God's covenant mercy. And so he's responding to the question in the context, is it unjust for God to choose the Hebrew people out of all the nations of the world? And Paul reminds them it has nothing to do with God's justice. It has everything to do with his compassion. Paul is saying God is sovereign and God does as he pleases. And in our American evangelical church where we glorify man, we would do well to hear these words. So that's the first illustration, God's sovereignty in pardoning Aaron Israel. But there's a second illustration that we'll look at quickly, and it's God's sovereignty in punishing erring Pharaoh. Verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Again, he's speaking of national election, choosing Isaac over Ishmael, the descendants of Jacob over Esau. And verse 16 is simply reminding us that God's choosing of the nation of Israel has to do with his mercy. Notice how the verse begins, so then it, what does it refer to? Well, it goes back to the nearest antecedent, to God's mercy. So God's mercy doesn't have anything to do, he says, with the man who wills or the man who runs. God's mercy has nothing to do with human will, with human wish, with human desire. God's mercy is not given on the basis of the man who who wills, nor is it given on the basis of the man who runs. It's not a reward for human work or some accomplishment that you've done. No, human willing and human wishing are not the motivating causes behind God's mercy. It's like God's grace. When we come to Romans 11 and verse 6, he'll say, if it, God's choosing of Israel, is by grace and is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. In other words, what makes the grace of God the grace of God? What makes the mercy of God the mercy of God is it's uncaused in us and it originates from God's own character. So God did not choose Israel out of all the nations of the world because they were such a great people. He chose them because of his mercy. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God doesn't need to consult anyone about his choices. God makes his decisions based on his desire in the way he works, not on man's desire in the way man works. And if he wants to show compassion and mercy on an undeserving nation and make them the Messiah nation out of all the nations of the world, that is his perfect right to do it. To listen again to today's message entitled The Mercy and Judgment of God, download the Search the Scriptures app available in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. There you can listen to the entire Roman series, as well as many other sermons by Pastor Brogy. Just look up Search the Scriptures with Dr. Brogy in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org, 
or request a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478. Today's message is entitled, The Mercy and Judgment of God. Tomorrow we'll hear the third and final part of this message. Join us then as we search the scriptures.